If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. It was certainly the, the, the six weeks in his life where he felt most alive and most independent. You know, he was not a prince, he was not a king. He was a man on the run for his life, uh, using his wits against his enemy. That was Charles Spencer on location at Boscobel House, where Charles II hid from his pursuers. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For today's episode, our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, paid a visit to Boscobel House in Shropshire, which is best known as the hiding place of Charles II, when he was on the run from Oliver Cromwell's forces after the Battle of Worcester in 1651. The story of Charles's flight to safety has recently been told by the historian and author Charles Spencer in his book To Catch a King, and so Charlotte invited him to join her at Boscobel to explore these dramatic events in more detail. And, as chance would have it, the visit took place on the anniversary of Charles II's stay at the house. We're here at Boscobel, um, where Charles II famously stayed um, when he was on the run in 1651. Um, just before we sort of talk about this period of his life, perhaps it's worth going back to the Civil War itself. How much action in the Civil War did Charles actually see before he went into exile? Well, surprisingly, because I, I think people have a view of Charles II very much as a sort of lazy, mistress-loving, horse-racing figure uh, as king. But actually, in his youth, he was very active in the Civil War. Uh, he was a, a, a bystander, really, but sort of technically part of the Battle of Edgehill, the first big battle in 1642, and all the way through to the final great defeat of the Royalists in 1651. Um there was a sort of period where Charles I wanted to keep him by his side. And then as the war really fell apart, you know, after Naseby, etc., uh, Charles I wanted his son to be away from him so that they weren't both killed or captured at the same time. So he was packed off to the southwest of England and was effectively the general in charge of the royalist forces in the southwest, uh, although he had a lot of real soldiers who did the, the real work. But he was actually a, a very brave man in battle. Um, we know that when he was uh, preparing for a, a large sea battle in, in uh, the end of the 1640s against the uh, English fleet, his officers said, look, you go and make yourself safe down below. And he absolutely would have none of it. He wanted to be in the front line of, of any battle. Now, that battle was called off. But eyewitness accounts at the Battle of Worcester, um, where he was literally a day or two before he ended up here at Boscobel, um, they, they give the most thrilling account of his action. You know, he was a man of great bravery and leadership. 
And, uh, you know, he got stuck in. He was, uh, as a young man, uh, I, I think he was very courageous, but, uh, and also a sort of seasoned soldier by the end of the Civil War. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that he was quite young at the time, you know, when he was sent down um, to the West Country. Yes, he was a teenager. And um, even by the time of Worcester, where he was nominally commanding a, a large army, he was only in his very early 20s. And he was, uh, you know, he, re- he enjoyed that side of things. And I think it is important to remember that. He wasn't just this fop with a, with a court <laughs> that, uh, you know, was, was, was inundated with pleasure. And, I mean, what was his relationship like with his parents? I mean, he, he seems to be a very, um, almost an opposite character to his father, Charles I. Mm. Well, Charles wanted to control his character. He gave him a, a sort of council of very wise and staid men, because essentially Charles I was quite religious and mm. uh, a serious figure. And so he gave people like um, Edward Hyde, who became Lord Clarendon, as, as a sort of principal figure to guide him. Um, and but you have to remember actually because the the royal family was so disparate at this time and geographically and after 1646 you know the last three years of Charles I's life they didn't see each other Charles I and the future Charles II and um, it, it was a time really of intense trial for the royal family because of the the way the civil war was going mm. they were all suffering in different ways you know when Henrietta Maria left the southwest of England it was with uh, parliamentary ships firing at her and uh, James a future James II having to escape the country dressed as a as a girl to get out of uh, imprisonment in St James's and you know a, a, and another little girl Princess Elizabeth dying in Carisbrook Castle tragically um, because she was kept in a quite close uh, imprisonment down there so all in all we, it, it's important to remember that this country suffered enormously then. It was the bloodiest conflict in terms of loss of life in, uh, against the population. It was even bloodier in those terms than the First World War. Mm. And the royal family itself was certainly not immune to the suffering that was uh, prevalent at the time. No, because I mean, he probably wouldn't have known his siblings all very well because they were scattered so, you know, and the youngest baby was actually left behind, wasn't she, by her mother? She was. And she eventually was got uh, safely away mm. by... Uh, a rather sort of daring lady-in-waiting who smuggled her across. But, yeah, they really, you know, they, they were at the uh, the sharp end of the Civil War. I mean, literally in Charles I's case. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, a, it was a tough time for everyone. Yeah. Was he sent away from um, England in 1646? Well, yes, it was a difficult... It became very controversial as to what to do with him because he was so important mm. uh, symbolically as well as, you know, just keeping him alive was very important. And so there was one faction of old-fashioned English statesmen who wanted him to remain in Crown Dominion. So he started in the Scilly Isles and he went to Jersey. But then there was Henrietta Maria, the Queen, was desperate to get him to France. She was a French princess and she thought that she could help the royalist cause with him there, maybe marry him off to uh, a powerful uh, heiress Mm. uh, who could bring an army or money to the cause. But the last thing that these staid Protestant statesmen wanted was to have their Prince of Wales brought up by France. You know, that was the old enemy. Yeah, and presumably he would be brought up as a Catholic. They were terrified of that. And in fact, Mm. Charles I was absolutely adamant about that. He said to Charles II, obey your mother in everything except religion, Mm. not allowed to do that. And um, But Henrietta Maria had it as an absolute fixation of her life was to bring up her children in a Catholic way if she could. And she got permission from the Pope when she married this Protestant prince, Charles I, that um, she would really be a subversive uh, enemy 
on behalf of Catholicism in Britain. Mm. So um, that made her very unpopular, uh, particularly with the Puritans in Parliament. But, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was very... Religion being so important at this time, of course, um, that, that trying to keep Charles II away from Roman Catholicism was, was really a key part of uh, a lot of the royalists' um, principles. Yeah. I mean, what was life like for him in exile? He was at the French court for a while. Um, mm. Well, I find his life in exile really pathetic. And I think it, it it led to his doomed attempt to get the crown back because that had to be better. Even with limited chances, it had to be better than the, the life he had been leading for five years. So he went to Jersey and the governor there, a man called Cartwright, tried to make him feel that he was still royal, even though he had a tiny retinue and no power. Uh, and there, there are wonderful eyewitness accounts of these very elaborate banquets with Charles being served all of the best things while literally alone at a table with everyone watching him eat and one servant on his knee offering bread throughout uh, the dinner and another with a handkerchief ready to mop his mouth. And I mean, really, you know, absurd, given that he was basically a fugitive. Mm. And then he was packed off. Eventually, his mother managed to secure his presence in the French court. And we think of Charles as this great sort of sophisticated womanizer. Well, he really wasn't at this stage. He was a very gawky teenager. And when he was put next to uh, the most powerful and wealthy heiress, uh, she was a princess of France called Madame de Montpensier. And the whole hope was that they would get together. Um, and she wrote these fantastic accounts of quite how gauche she was. Um, and the whole table, everyone leaving them and, and him sitting there without uttering a word for 15 minutes. Uh, so he wasn't very good at seduction. And he felt really, I think he felt very emasculated by the whole experience. And also at the same time, his mother treated him as a little boy, even though he wasn't one. And she was very conscious of her status. And she used to make him take his hat off in her presence, which was very unusual for a prince of his eminence. And she made sure that the pension that came to him through France went through her. She basically gave him pocket money. And it was really awful for him. And then at the same time, there was the constant question of how could he get his throne back? His father had died. Many of his father's beliefs were, you know, tricky ones to subscribe to. But at least he died as a man of principle. He hadn't sacrificed his religious beliefs uh, to keep his crown or his head. Um, but Charles II was convinced that the only way he could possibly get on the throne again was by going into an alliance with somebody who wasn't in tune with the Church of England, really. And, and, and eventually, having, having hoped he could do it with Ireland and their Catholics, uh, he ended up um, having to go for the Scots mm. and their Presbyterians. And uh, it was very controversial. I mean, you know, the courtiers I've mentioned already, the old school, Clarendon, etc., they they just ha would have nothing to do with this venture because they thought it was against principles. And actually, there was a sort of... It, it's quite odd for us because you'd have thought you, you'd just do anything to get the crown back. But these sophisticated men of traditional values were saying that we'd rather not be in power than have you in power... Uh, with the help of people who are totally against our religion. So he really sort of sold out, didn't he, to get the crown back? He did sell out. And the great victim of this was um, the, the great um, royalist champion in Scotland, the Marquis of Montrose. So Charles used Montrose, who had had a string of amazing victories in the earlier civil wars with small forces against much larger parliamentary and covenant uh, Scots. And... Um, 
he used him as a bargaining chip. He said, please come back and help my cause in Scotland. And Montrose did it in good faith. But actually, Charles was just trying to keep the pressure on his Scottish, uh, the people who were trying to woo him into a Scottish alliance by saying, well, if you, I want to settle on better terms and my champion is back fighting me. Montrose is back fighting me in Scotland. And then there's this very poignant moment where Charles knows that Montrose is going to have to be sacrificed for the cause of his new alliance. And he sends him a letter, including a sort of the, the news that he's going to be made a knight of the garter, the highest chivalric order. Uh, but at the same time, it's sort of the kiss of death because mm. he's saying, I've, I've got to ally with these your, your enemies. And sure enough, very soon afterwards, um, Montrose was captured and taken through the streets of Edinburgh and wasn't allowed the, the traditional nobleman's execution of a, by, by an axe, but was um, hanged. And uh, I, I'm afraid that is one of the more shameful moments in Charles II's life. Do we know how he felt about that, about sort of betraying this Montrose? I think he felt appalled by it, but at the same time he felt he had to do the right thing for the crown. And um, there is a sort of, there is a very, I, I love the visual element of these stories, you know, and that when Charles is coming through Scotland, he arrives in the north of Scotland, he's coming south to get to um, the power base in, of Edinburgh. And he passes through, I think it's Edinburgh, and he says, oh, what's that on the, on the gate? Uh, some strange object. And it was one of Montrose's arms. Yeah, I thought you were going to say that, yeah. <laughs> yes, had been nailed up high as a deterrent. Um, so it was certainly, you know, the fact that he had betrayed Montrose was not something he could forget. No. Um, so you mentioned that he he sort of entered into this partnership with the, the Presbyterians in Scotland. Um, what did they want in exchange for um, for help? Well, it's it's hard for us to understand at this distance how intense their religious belief was. You know, there's a man called uh, Lord Warriston who was one of the main figures in the Scottish uh, sort of uh, Calvinists, extreme Calvinists. And he was a man who liked to sleep very short hours so that he could have extra time to pray. And he used to pray for hours by himself. You know, that's what he did. Uh, there was one account of what he started first thing in the morning and he forgot the day. He was still praying sort of 12, 14 hours later because he was in such an intense place. And then uh, on top of that, I mean, you did not want to be a dinner guest at his house because grace could go on for an hour before <laughs> you got your food. So you're dealing with people of such fundamental faith. I mean, there are, you know, there are echoes of it around the world today where, where you believe in your God so intensely that uh, nothing else matters. So they believed that even a king was just uh, another sinner who should be uh, under God's law. And they, in the Kirk, the sort of Scottish assembly, as it were, they would oversee his uh, moral rights, uh, uh, the, the, sorry, his morality, actually, um, as much as um, any other human being. So he was really, a king was viewed as a sort of magistrate rather than a divine appointment. So the divine, the divine rights was not something that was adhered to by, you know, they didn't think he was appointed by God. Not at all. They, they believed that he had to do God's duty, otherwise he was capable of removal of, from office, really. And that's quite um, at odds with, you know, Charles I had a very strong sense of his his um, his divine right, didn't he? Yes. Um, did Charles II, did he feel the same, you know, about that? Well, he did. We know, I mean, later in his, when, when he was crowned, you know, he, he did do uh, the sort of rather odd things, touching for the king's evil. He, he, he believed he had 
because of his divine appointment, the ability to cure people from their illness. Mm. So he definitely believed that, but it wasn't in a political way, I don't think. I mean, he didn't, he realised he had to suffer a, a loss of dignity to have the Scots on side. And Charles I would never countenance that. Also, I have to say, Charles I realised exactly what I said earlier, which was that, you know, to, to, to ally yourself with Scottish Presbyterianism was to uh, lose your power as king because that it just they they wouldn't they wouldn't have the same um, reverence for him, mm. and that was very difficult for Charles because he thought he was letting letting God down, and, and Charles I was adamant that in Scotland he really did want bishops there because he again believed that they were appointed by God uh, mm. as his officers, you know, and you know it's very I mean very intense. You think England and Scotland they were so different. Um, in their religious belief. Yes, there were ex- obviously extreme Puritans down here, but the breadth of support for extreme Calvinism in Scotland was was very uh, surprising. Mm. It's, it's ironic, really, because a lot of the causes for the Civil War in the first place had sort of stemmed around Scotland and its relationship with, with England. And then here's Charles II coming to them for help Yes. Get the throne back. And that was very difficult for a lot of the royalists. Mm. They did not like that idea at all. So it was really... Um, the, his people, Charles II's people, really fell into two camps. One who saw themselves as pragmatists. This was the only way they were going to get the crown back. Uh, There was no other way. And um, others who thought, well, if there's another way, then if there isn't another way, we just have to suck it up, really. You know, so... Uh, I I don't know, in in a way, in in, in my book, I try and actually look at it almost as a sort of um, pull on Charles's conscience. And his conscience is personified by Edward Hyde, later Earl of Clarendon, who is so clear that you do not do uh, alliances with these people. And in a way, the, the, the background to the story is that Charles sells his principles out to get the Scots to help him. And Almost this six weeks on the run is a sort of odyssey, at the end of which he turns his back really on the influence of his mother and those who've said you should ally with the wrong people. And he turns to Edward Hyde uh, until, you know, six or seven years into his reign uh, as his main advisor because he was right. It Mm. didn't work having the Scots come in. I think one of the problems for Charles, he hadn't understood, you know, he's a cosmopolitan figure and he was king of Scotland, and he was a steward. And he thought, well, when I lead my Scottish army into England, we'll be welcomed by English royalists. But most English royalists just saw an invading Scottish army, which they'd seen before and not enjoyed. So Charles was seeing things in a much more cosmopolitan way than your average Englishman who thought, oh, my God, it's the Scots again. And they had a terrible reputation for, you know, rape and pillage. And not, not all of it deserved, but that was the reputation. And, and part of the story, actually, which is so interesting, is how the Civil War developed the uh, propaganda sheets, the news sheets, the magazines uh, and, and news reports. They proliferated in a massive way as, as, as propaganda instruments. And um, people listened to them. You know, they really did believe the stories that were put to them by mainly by the printing presses in London, which controlled by Parliament. And I suppose people were probably just heartily sick of fighting and war, and you know, to have the the prospect of another mm. another fight. It's true. I, I think the figure is something like two hundred thousand Englishmen died in because of the First and Second Civil War. Uh, either from direct conflict or from battle-borne diseases, etc. 
And people had just had enough. I mean, even in Oxford, which was the royalist capital in the First and Second Civil War, you have uh, people there manning the defences in case they, they assumed Charles was headed there rather than for Worcester to have a, a launching pad of going from Oxford into London. And so even ultra-royalist Oxford turned its back on Charles II. It just wasn't, wasn't the right time. Was, um, was Charles also driven by anger at, you know, his father being beheaded, which was, you know, would have created shockwaves, you know, across Europe. It's a, you know, a huge thing to have happened. Was anger behind his kind of wanting to come back and, and get the throne back? Definitely the case. So in his declaration of why he was coming, um, one was because he felt he was the rightful king, of course. But in in the, I think the third reason he gave was to deal with the murderers of his father, as he called them. And um, this was something that stayed with him, you know. And when he eventually came back in 1660, he came back on a platform that had been negotiated of reconciliation. Uh, you know, half the country had fought against his family. What are you going to do about that? You have to forgive. But he left a clause in the agreement that said, but of course I cannot be expected to forget the men who murdered my father, uh, of which there were sort of 80, I mean, 50, 90 signed the death warrant, but also the officers of the court and the people who were officers at the beheading. So, And Charles never, ever got over these people doing that to his father, understandably. But even, I mean, he died in 1685. Up until that date, uh, people were scouring the east coast of America looking for runaway regicides, as these killers of the king were known. So, no, he never got over that. And he tried very hard, um, rather dramatically. He tried to rescue his father by uh, submitting to Parliament, when he knew his father was going to be on trial, um, a piece of paper with just his signature at the bottom. It really was the ultimate carte blanche where he would have agreed to any terms to save his father's life. And and um, we know from eyewitness accounts that when Charles II received the news of his father's death, while his courtiers were in total shock, he, he was really screaming in agony at it. Mm, gosh. So um, the decision is made then to return to... Britain and um, he lands in Scotland you say yes um, how is he received in Scotland is he received as a king or well he's he's received as a sort of king without power mm. until he's totally agreed to all of the Calvinist terms uh, they say well you, you are nominally king but we won't let you actually rule until you've had to do really degrading things such as say how appalling his parents were and it's their sins that had caused the civil war and caused the defeats and he had to repent for his own actions. I mean, to be honest, he wasn't a Calvinist's ideal ruler. <laughs> I mean, he already had a bit of a reputation for uh, having a fairly wild private life. And uh, they were aware of this. And actually, there's a rather poignant bit uh, I found of one of the negotiators uh, who managed to persuade Charles to agree to the terms, sort of um, almost flagellating himself, saying we've done a terrible thing because we're making this young prince promise things which he doesn't believe. And this in itself is a sin. Um, so yes, he he, played, he paid lip service to what was required of him by the Scots. and uh, But they never trusted each other. And in fact, a year before this tale, he went on the run away from them. And it's quite an interesting moment. Uh, it was called The Start. He tried. He pretended he was going on a hunting trip, but then he bolted 
north and trying to head for the highlands for, for other supporters to get away from the Calvinists. And he, it was a terrible escape because they eventually found Charles sort of sobbing under a mattress in a hovel. And um, it's quite a nice juxtaposition because actually the escape, uh, which I, I write about after Worcester, is one of great daring and heroism, etc. Uh, but to place that against, I'm afraid, a, a not very manly uh, episode a year earlier is quite interesting. And I, I put that down actually to the people around this house, you know, we're at Boscobel now. But the, the sort of yeoman farmer family, the Pendrels, who looked after him, when he was trying to get away on the first night after the defeat, uh, he did his usual thing of sort of feeling really sorry for himself and sobbing and saying he couldn't go on. But this solid sort of, you know, hardworking peasant farmer said, well, you're not giving up on me now. We're going to do this. Mm. And he needed that. He needed somebody to give him the backbone to go on. And then, and then actually, he he learns, he learns the the way to be a successful fugitive incredibly quickly. But he hadn't he hadn't got it in himself. I don't believe it was the support network that he stumbled across that gave him a chance. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Worcester, the Battle of Worcester was kind of the the really the last straw, really, wasn't it for him? Um, yes. When he came south to to gather support in England, what had made him think that there was so much support for him still in England? It was wishful thinking. There was no evidence for it at all. And but, but what he actually, to be fair to him, what he didn't know was how brilliant the parliamentarians were at giving him no chance at all. So they'd imprisoned anyone they thought was a real royalist threat, they imprisoned. Uh, those who were sort of dubious weren't allowed to leave. They were only allowed to stay within five miles of their houses. Um, lots of their weapons had been confiscated. And also you know, the royalists have been pummeled and pummeled for, you know, for a decade. Mm. Uh, certainly after 1644, things had not gone well for them. And so a lot of people just waited to see. They want If there'd been a royalist victory early on, then they might have come to him. But the very first thing happened um, in Lancashire, at Wigan Lane, um, uh, the only sizable English force that would have joined um, Charles was under the Earl of Derby. And they were surprised by a parliamentary force you know, the New Model Army was a very effective military machine and, and, and they were up against, I mean, Earl of Derby's retainers from the Isle of Man with sort of, you know, very basic weapons and no real training. It wasn't a, it was a, it was a real mismatch. Um, and so Charles, I think, learned as he went along, he was amazed. None of, none of the cities or towns opened their, their gates to his men. Um, and the leading Scottish commanders, the main one was a man called General Leslie, they they were sort of shrugging their shoulders all the way, saying this is going to be a disaster. And sure enough, it was. And the, the, the parliamentarians were very efficient at raising their men. They closed the way back to Scotland. They just gently nudged uh, Charles's forces further and further away from any hope. He was only going to stop at Worcester to just have a break because the men were exhausted. Um, but they were Worcester opened its case. That was a, it was a great royalist stronghold in the civil wars. Um, it had been one of the last places uh, on the mainland to surrender, etc. And they were they were. I think Charles realised that they say he realised that if he left Worcester, it would have suffered terribly for having been so royalist. And he felt so honour bound to stay there and try and make a, a hand of it. 
But, you know, he had 16,000 men and, and Parliament managed to pull together probably the largest army on English soil ever uh, in the high 30,000s. I mean, of course, there are Battle of Towton or whatever, and we don't really know, and Bodicea, we really don't know. But, but the, the, the largest army that is properly recorded and... You know, the Scottish cavalry took one look at this and thought, well, we're not going to get involved in this. And so they they left. And uh, although it was a it was a very hard-fought battle, Cromwell said it was the toughest one he'd ever been in uh, for a while, largely down to Charles's bravery as a leader, uh, it was only really going to go one way. Mm. And um, they were really butchered um, in, by, in the thousands. And uh, the, the parliamentary casualties were negligible. I mean, it's not a battle that you read lot about, though, is it? Not at all. The... It's completely... Well, it's not completely forgotten. It's it's very much a footnote of history, mm-hmm. although in America it's always had a, a greater significance. So in the 1780s, um, the great presidents, Adams and uh, Jefferson, came to visit England and they went on a sort of pilgrimage of places that really mattered to them. And Adams wrote he couldn't believe... Even then, people had forgotten about Worcester and he said, this is holy land because of liberty being won here. And he said, it's holier land than any church in England. And he was appalled by the fact that we had forgotten it then. Well, certainly now it's really forgotten. Yeah. Um, but it was it was absolute end of the royalist military um, threat. And um, actually it was Cromwell's final battle. And it was sort of the end of it. Because before that, you know, for the two years between Charles I's execution and the Battle of Worcester, two and a half years... The, the, the Commonwealth was not established at all. It could have gone either way, and 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 um, it was it was it just set the seal on on letting Cromwell eventually sort of get stuck in as Lord Protector. It was it was the it was the decisive battle. And this is the point when Charles is a fugitive. He goes on the run, doesn't he? How do they get away from the battle? I mean, what's the, what's the plan? Well, it was it was Charles's real brilliance was right at the beginning. So he. First of all, when he was fleeing Worcester, he kept stopping his horse and saying, come on, we, I, we've got to go back. And luckily, a lot of sort of experienced soldiers around him said, no, no, we, that was mm-hmm. it. We've been utterly defeated. Mm-hmm. And um, so there wasn't really a plan as such, because, of course, he hadn't known he'd be overwhelmed like that. What he hadn't realised was that the parliamentarians knew they were going to win the battle very easily. And they had put a, a, a net around uh, Worcester, so that they could capture the Scots on their way home. And it was, and they were very effective. I mean, very, very few people got away. This is one of the amazing things is Charles is one of so few who got away from the Battle of Worcester. And yet he was six foot two when people weren't. He had quite dark skin. He's quite distinctive. They called him the black boy in some of the news sheets. That's who they were looking for because his mother was um, French-Italian. And um, you, you read these news sheets and there's not really a worry about it. They assume he's dead and he's probably among the stripped bodies which, you know, after the battle, mm. who knew? There were sort of 3,000 bodies lying there. Could, he could have been one of them. And then they think, well, we, we, we're not finding him among the bodies. And it's um, it then becomes really important to them because, again, if they are going to establish the Commonwealth, they need to catch him and kill him. He would definitely have been killed. Mm. And um, so this urgency, in fact, that the, the main person looking for him is a really good baddie. Um, he's called uh, Major General Thomas Harrison, and he's this zealot of a Puritan who has escorted Charles I from near the Isle of Wight to um, his place of trial in London. 
And so he's put in charge of hunting him down. And he's done really well. I mean, they keep bringing enormous numbers of prisoners um, because Charles had recognised this. His men had totally lost their nerve. So you have hundreds of royalists on the run surrendering to 30 parliamentarians because they just lost it. Their morale is shot. And um, Charles, on that, in, literally in the first hour of fleeing, he sees defeat in everyone's eyes. And he just decides, right, I'm going to get away from these people. They didn't fight very well before I was beaten. They're certainly not going to do any good now. And he thinks, but I will need a companion. And he looks around and he's got a sort of, um, well, a, a, a fast-living sort of courtier friend who, who was a very effective royalist general called Henry uh, Lord Wilmot. And um, he says to Wilmot, I want to head for London. I think that's the cleverest thing to do. First of all, massive population there. And also lots of ships to get to France. So a good place to hide. And all the others, all the others are thinking, no, let's get back to Scotland. And almost none of them make it. And um, Wilmot and him decide to meet at certain places. They have a plan, a vague plan of getting to London. And I, I think that was Charles's genius. He got rid of all of the defeated and analysed the one man who was brave, and I have to say, sort of foolhardy enough, to take on this impossible enterprise. Because it must have been very tempting just to kind of say, throw his hands up and say, oh, I've done my best, you know, I give up. Well, it is interesting because I, I think he knew what would... I, I think it would have been certain well, death. Yeah. So that, But I, I, I think... He, he he certainly knew that the, the cause was over. There's one moment in his escape where after lots of... I mean, it was really tough, the escape. I mean, we think of him... If you if you go past the, one of the pubs, I think there's 400 pubs in England called the Royal Oak. And if you go past them, there's always him in a sort of, you know, cavalier kit, sort of hiding in a tree, looking very relaxed. It wasn't like that at all. It was brutal. You know, he was on the run for the first few days, no sleep or hardly any sleep. And, and this is a man, you've got to remember, who had been used to... I mean, this is a, a detail, but used to the finest footwear. Mm. And suddenly he's using a sort of peasant's really rough shoes and his feet are just cut to ribbons running around the countryside, around these parts of uh, Shropshire and Staffordshire. And he's in agony from the word go. Um, but he's tough and he's he's adaptable. And once he understands that there is a, a network, around here there was a Roman Catholic network who could help um, he very quickly realised that. He knew that they had methods of hiding priests, such as priest holes in the building, that he could probably use. So he, he was clever enough to recognise that they could be his salvation. Um, but once he got into that, he he he, he learnt very quickly how to just get through it, really. Mm. It's interesting you say that he had support from Catholics, even though he had done this deal with the Scots, which presumably would have caused more persecution for Catholics in England. They were still they were still willing to help him. They were. So, I mean, the, the vast majority of Catholics in England were royalist mm. because they had such a fear of the Puritans. Um, so they had a residu residual loyalty. And in fact, the families that he fell into here, so the, 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 this wonderful family, the Pendrels, of which five brothers helped him, they had fought in the royalist army and... Uh, and it, there was a massive crossover between Catholicism and serving the crown. Um, and they, they were, it's quite interesting for us to read this in the 21st century, you know, the reverence they had for him as a divinely appointed king. I mean, they, they, they really thought they had been entrusted by God with this 
wonderful privilege of helping the king on the run. And um, and then he, then you read you know, the Puritans calling him Charles Stuart, and they just want to chop his head off. Uh, it, it's it it really does distill the two sides in the Civil War. These men who think this is the the greatest possible privilege to help him. And the others think, we've got to kill this man because he's going to destroy our country. Yeah, and they were willing to risk their lives for him. You know, they yes. would have been killed too if they'd been... Yes, one of, them, one of them was, not one of the Pendles, but one of their brothers-in-law mm. um, was caught and interrogated and refused to give anything up about what, when he had last seen the king. And they, they, he was hanged in Oxford. Uh, and it would definitely have happened to the others. And in fact, right at the end of the escape... Uh, even the famous Jane Lane, who she was a, a lady whose horse he rode on and, uh, and pretending to be a servant, um, it, she, she was. They were looking for her to bring her in for imprisonment, and, mm. and you know it was tough then. I mean, right at the end, you find out that some of the people who were royalists, even though they were women, they were tortured. There, uh, there's a woman who was burnt every day with sort of coals, etc. To because you know we, we think of people being very sort of charming and civilized in those days but it was brutal and especially if you could hate somebody because of their religion or whatever it made it okay to do brutal things yeah this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So tell me how he ended up here at Boscobel. After Worcester, he was on the run and there was a man he liked who had joined him, a, a local nobleman called Lord Talbot. And Talbot said, we should go to Boscobel. And at the same time, um, Charles, one of Charles's main lieutenants was the Earl of Derby, who had been wounded in a skirmish up in Langshire, which, uh, at Wigan Lane. And he had managed to find a hiding place here before Worcester, and he recommended it as well. So Charles was heading for Boscobel, and then for some reason, Boscobel was in, a, in thick woodland then, um, as the name suggests. I mean, it means in beautiful woodland uh, in Italian. And and the, somebody, we don't know who, decided actually there's an even better hiding place. It's called White Ladies, which is, uh, it was the ruins of an old priory with some uh, sort of quite basic houses on it. So he went to White Ladies. And then from there, he tried to get to the River Severn because he felt that the, if he could get to Wales, there was a lot of uh, royalist support there. But he found that was completely closed. And then he came back and he came to Boscobel because uh, the same family basically were serving in both houses. And here he found one of the great heroes of the piece, um, a man called Major Carless, or Careless, depends on the <laughs> spelling at the time. He was spelt that way too who had been one of the figures who had helped Charles escape from Worcester. So to cover Charles's escape, uh, a dozen or so officers kept attacking down the street, the main street in Worcester, to, to hold back the parliamentarians. And this, this included uh, Carlos or Carlos, and, and he got away. He was the last man out of Worcester. And he had been hiding in these parts. And he's the one who came up with this brilliant idea of hiding in the oak tree. He had used it. He'd been on the run uh, for quite a long time in, in this area. 
And he was a native of this part of the world. And he said, look, if there is only one place, if you stay in a house, it doesn't matter how good the priest told, they will find you. Mm. And um, they spent a day up uh, the tree, the, the famous royal oak, of which a descendant still exists today. And um, it was just one of those, it was just an amazingly lush tree. And Charles saw people looking for him. Uh, he went to sleep. He was so exhausted. He went in, to sleep in the major's arms. And there was a moment when the major realised that with, there were parliamentary troops right below the tree. Uh, and he felt, uh, because Charles had been lying on him for such a long time, he realised that he had lost all sensation in his leg and that they were both going to slide out mm. uh, in front of the enemy. So he had to pinch the king while not allowing him to make a noise to, to just say, you've got to move because otherwise we're dead. And um, so that this is the most lyrical part of the tale is the hiding in the oak tree. And to Charles, it became a, an incredibly important symbol of this six weeks, his most, it was certainly the, the, the six weeks in his life where he felt most alive and most independent. You know, he was not a prince, he was not a king. He was a man on the run for his life, uh, using his wits against his enemy. And um, so when he came back in 1660, one of the very first things he did on the ship coming back to England was to tell a group of people, you won't know the true story, but this is what happened in those six weeks. And among those first people to hear the tale from the king's mouth was Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist. And Pepys basically became a, an investigative journalist, really. <laughs> and over the next 25 years, uh, 23 years, actually, but he, he, he tracked down all the main uh, people who had supported Charles on the run and took their accounts of what had happened. And if you think about it, you know, you're leading a humdrum life in Shropshire, Staffordshire, or any one of the 10 counties that he passed through, you would remember every detail of what happened, the, the half day or the three days that you helped preserve the king's liberty and life. Yeah. And um, so part of my job, actually, as writing this was to, some of them are conflicting, was to work out who was closest to the action when they're reporting this and, and which is the most sort of authentic voice. And uh, it was an incredible thing to read these words and to read the detail. I love that, that there's one man who remembers sitting there and opening a bottle um, of, of cider and out flew two hornets. And you just think, <laughs> it's just so visual, isn't it? And yeah. it's just, but you would remember that because nothing else is, I mean, what else is, you, you know, you buy a good heifer on market day. I mean, there's not, <laughs> not many things to go in the diary, is mm. there really? Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the accounts as you sort of said, um, there's a lot of food involved and things like yes. that, the detail, but not an awful lot about the how people were feeling about and perhaps how Charles felt about. Yes, I, 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 that's a great shame, actually, mm. when you're writing about this period. I mean, Charles II was a very, he was a man of sen sensuous tastes and uh, so it's endless things about what he ate or didn't eat and how hungry he was or whatever, but very big descriptions about that from him. To Peeps, because Peeps was eventually allowed an audience with him and took notes of what the king remembered. Um, but I, 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 I'm afraid I think it was to do with the fact that Charles felt it was unbecoming to share the fact that he was frightened mm. or nervous or whatever. So he just glossed over that. And that's that's very... So you have to leave it as self-evident, really, that, you know, when he's being chased down a sort of uh, a lane through the mud, then his heart was going. Yeah. But um, he doesn't write about that. I think he thought it was not 
not dignified to write about feelings. I mean, we've walked out to the the tree today yes. and um, just being out there, it's, you know, it's very atmospheric. You can imagine how scary it would have been to be in that tree and looking down and seeing, you know, soldiers who, want, who wanted to kill you. It, it, it must have been an amazing, I mean, literally... On the 3rd of September, he was king of Scotland, hoping to be king of England, in command of a large army. And then within a matter of hours, he was the most hunted man in the country. And being disguised as a woodman, uh, you know, haircut to suit and all, all of that sort of thing. And, and, and I, it must have been a shock of a, a huge magnitude. And also, the, he, he must have realised straight away that was it for the royalist cause. You know, they played their last card. So there must have been a depression as well. Um, but uh, I think just the, whew, you know, the life or death struggle yeah. kept him going because, I mean, there was no doubt what was going to happen if they caught him. And in fact, you know, he'd already been declared a traitor. Um, he was already guilty of high treason. They, they wouldn't even they wouldn't even have needed a court except to process the charge if they needed to. But it was he was done yeah. if he was caught. And there was a price on his head, wasn't there, for people to to turn him in? So he didn't know who was going to be who was friend or foe that he was meeting. He was so shocked when he found out somebody had been at a fair and they had heard a proclamation condemning him and offering a thousand pounds for his capture. This is such a huge sum. I mean, even if you convert it. You know, there are ways of converting what 1651 a thousand pounds meant, but but it doesn't really get across the massive nature of it. So even when major generals of his were caught, they were the reward was fifty pounds. Mm, yeah. So the fact that he was twenty times that, and he got very upset when he learned from these people who were looking after him, the Pendrels, that there was a thousand pounds because he thought, well, of course they're going to hand me in for that because mm. anyone would. And um, Major Curlis says, no, no, I just want you to know if we were offered a hundred times, we wouldn't do it. And it is interesting, the intense loyalty that some of these people felt to the king, because actually there's this, these moments where, you know, he's sitting in an inn or whatever, and people come up and say, I know who you are, but I'm not going to betray you, wow. you know, because to them, it was a, almost a religious mission to save the king. And they would, they would condemn themselves forever. When he was here... Um, in this the White Ladies Boscobel area, they're only a mile or so apart. Um, so when he was actually in, in, in White Ladies and he's saying goodbye to all his commanding officers and his household, they all begged him not to tell him what his plans were because they didn't want the eternal shame of being tortured and revealing any detail. So they all just said, do not tell us what you're going to do. Yeah. I mean, he would have been lost without them, wouldn't he? Yes. Um, and we're, we're actually sitting in the attic now, aren't we, in, with the priesthold that he actually stayed in. And yes. And we just happened to be here on the anniversary of when he I stayed. I know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> that is a real coincidence. But, it, yes, he turned up here uh, on this day in 1651. Priestholds were these incredible constructs. They were master priesthole makers, these sort of uh, craftsmen, of which the most interesting one is this man called Nicholas Owen who was a carpenter from Oxford, but his real work happened at night. And, and the priest hole was, only, it would only have been known where it was and how it was accessed by the, the man of the house and the man who made it. Mm. Uh, nobody else would have known how to access it. And um, they, they prided themselves, the really good makers of priest holes, prided themselves on never doing the same one twice. Because of course, once one had been found, then they would use the same formula to find yeah. the next. Yeah. 
But the really crafty ones were the ones which were sort of, I don't know how they thought of them, because of course there wouldn't have been a written plan, but thinking in 3D of how to have one curling around inside the wall of a building is very clever. But this one is a very, it, it's, a, it's a very good priest hole, but it's a, it's a standard, you know, it's down below the floorboards sort of thing. And, and there would have been um, ways of uh, concealing it. But it was, uh, it was a, uh, Charles was so big, uh, he found the priest holes really, most of them very tough because he was six foot two and, and it was just a, very difficult for him to even lie down. So you find him at, at various stages. Um, he would have been in, the room next door, but with the priest hole ready to go, as it were, because it was so uncomfortable for yeah. him. So um, what he's he's at Bosco just for a couple of days in this area. Where does he go after? What's the, what's the, and the new plan? Well, when he realises that Wales isn't an option because um, Parliament's closed it effectively, there's, there's soldiers everywhere, uh, he's still hoping to go to London. But the people around here... Only it's it, it's such a quiet sort of local area. They only know other royalists in this area, so there's no way they can help him get to to London. And um, so he, while while he's in this area, one of the other Pendrel brothers, these five brothers, is helping his sidekick, Lord Wilmot, to get away. And that's very difficult because Lord Wilmot refused to wear a disguise. So he looked really like a. Uh, a cavalry commander from the Royalist forces <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, endless sort of close scrapes. But then by complete chance, the, um, the, the, they, they bump into a, a priest, a Roman Catholic priest called Father Huddleston, who's one of the great characters in this story. And Huddleston says, okay, well, I, 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 maybe I can help help Wilmot, that is, because they were separate at this stage, Wilmot and Charles. And he takes uh, Wilmot in at another house, uh, not that far from here. And eventually, there's sort of, it's a terrible problem for, you have to remember the the state of communications at this time. There is a sort of, um, that's the great plus for Charles, in that his enemies can't communicate effectively or quickly when tracking him down. Mm. But at the same time, he's very isolated. And he and Wilmot almost miss each other so many times you think they're never going to meet up again. Um, but they, they eventually do meet up. and there's a, So really what happens is this is what I would call the Roman Catholic underground, Boscobel, white ladies, this area. It's all the Catholics help in a sort of, uh, like an underground resistance movement to hide him. But then the next chapter really is a, a series of colonels who have served in the Royalist army who know each other and trust each other. And they provide a, a, a separate network to get into the next phase. So it's quite, I, I actually broke the book down. It's almost like acts in yeah. a play because this is so distinctive. This, um, you know, yeoman farmers from a Catholic background with the gentry thrown in. And then this officer class uh, of old royalists who sort of salute each other and help <laughs> each other. It's very much sort of three musketeers stuff. Uh, they then take it on from there. And then it sort of uh, goes sideways after that. I mean, one of the things is, yes, it lasted six weeks, this time on the run. But there are so many times where you think he's going to get away now because it just had to be the case. And then something goes very wrong at the last moment. And um, so it's that's where I really admire Charles because I think it's one thing to have your hopes dashed once 
But to have them repeatedly dash and to keep going is quite and quite impressive. But actually, I think he shares the credit for that with the he was just incredibly lucky with the people he fell in with who were they were they were determined to get him away. Yeah. I suppose the longer he's in England for, the the greater the chance of him being found and Absolutely. And you know, by the end, I mean I they're almost tripping over him by the end. Yeah. They don't they 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 know roughly where he is and you know, it's uh, it's one of those, it's, it, it, you know, the story reads like, not not my version of it, but the story itself reads like fiction because mm. you, you can't believe that he just gets away from this and just... And um, what what's incredible really to me is that at the end, it's all rather sort of mundane. He just gets on a ship and goes, goes to France. From, yeah. Was it from Bristol he went in the end? Well, no, he tried. He went. He tried to go through Bristol, but it's amazing, really, because you think of Bristol. Bristol was the second port. Mm. I mean, London by far the biggest, but Bristol was very big too. And um, when he sort of researches there, there isn't a ship going to France or Spain for the next month. <laughs> and you just think, what on earth's going on? But that was the case. Yeah. And actually, somebody has this brilliant idea. Um, Thinking laterally, uh, they think, well, look, so there's nothing going from these parts for the, for this period from English ships, but there must be French ships returning. So they find a French merchant who then finds another way. So it's sort of, they, they then head more towards the Brighton area okay. and all that. But, and, and that's uh, it then? That's that's the, 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 you know, the fight for the throne is over, well, temporarily. Well, yes. And then Charles goes back to a really sort of terrible life. I mean, yes, there's massive celebrations among the royalists around Europe, and particularly the French can't believe he's back and, he, you know, he's escaped. But very soon it all becomes pathetic again. And so, you know, the great hero, his sidekick, Lord Wilmot, rather than being able to fight for the king, is sort of going around courts in Germany begging for money to keep the king afloat. Uh, there's the odd sort of hopeless rebellion, um, which goes nowhere. Um, but he he doesn't come back through any great credit or virtue in him. He comes because Cromwell dies unexpectedly on the seventh anniversary of the Battle of Worcester, which is also Cromwell's birthday. And suddenly there's no one to fill that void. There's nobody who has control of Parliament and the respect of the new model army. There are lots of very decent people out there, but they can't combine the two. And so over 18 months, uh, power in England unravels there's civil unrest, and people think, well, what do we do? And they think, well, we might as well have a king again. Mm. And he's invited back. So, uh, uh, and one of his, one of the main men who helps him is there when Charles appears. And he is, he's amazed. He says the contrast between when, when I was helping the king escape uh, a few years back and everyone wanted to kill him, and now they all want to be the loudest cheering for him, um, reappearing because nobody wants to be tainted by past association with Parliament. They all want to, everyone's sort of pretending it never really happened. And mm. the scenes in London when he reappears on his 30th birthday and then for his coronation after that, they're, they're apparently among the most jubilant scenes this country's ever seen. And it was because everyone was exhausted, you know, after it was nearly 20 years of civil turmoil and military bloodletting and repression and, you know, no Christmas at some stage and all this sort of thing, that you can suddenly get back to being, you know, part of a... The Republic's gone and you're back to what you know, which is a, a royal family, and, and he seems a really good guy. But, of course, he was very disappointing very quickly. He wasn't a good king. 
he was very charming. He's very lazy. Um, and very quickly people realize, oh my God, he's not the savior we hope for. And some tolerated that and some were really upset about it. But when he came back, it was, uh, it was sort of, it was like Obama's presidency for the first time when he was welcomed. It was that sort of moment you thought everything's changed and it's always going to be perfect. That was Charles Spencer. To Catch a King, Charles II's Great Escape is out now in the UK, published by William Collins. And in the US, it will be released next May by the same publisher. Boscobel House is open for visitors. Find out more details at english-heritage.org.uk. And you can read more from Charles and Charlotte in the December edition of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with Lettuce Knowles and Elizabeth I on the cover. Well, that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday, where we'll be talking to Sasha Handley about the history of sleeping. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.